From Upstate Medical University, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Our guest today is one of the nation's few specialists who is duly trained and certified in both internal medicine and aerospace medicine. Dr. Michael Barrett has participated in two space flights, and he currently serves as an active astronaut at NASA at the Johnson Space Center. Um, he's on the Upstate campus to speak about physiology and space flight. So, thank you for making time to speak with HealthLink. It's a pleasure to be here, Amber. Thank you. So, what does space do to human physiology? <laughs> well, it's, it's I know actually it's a long answer, but you know, it's a small question with a, with a huge answer. <laughs> But it's really quite an interesting one. You know, the, the human is is designed to function very well in a 1G environment, as we call it, 1G being the force of gravity on Earth. But people think about that as kind of a, a static gravity field, when in reality, the body changes its direction to that gravity vector many times each day. We lie down, we sit up, we stand up, and we're very active uh, in, in moving our postures around. And the physiology that has to protect the, the body, the brain, keeping the blood flow up, keeping the, the blood flow to the kidneys and whatnot, during all of those challenges against gravity is, is really quite amazing. And being in space where you remove all that gravity has, has caused us to really appreciate how amazing we are uh, to be able to handle all the challenges that we have with respect to gravity on the ground. So when you get into space and you take away that dominant force of gravity, all of a sudden, everything is equaled out. The forces on your um, your spine, the forces on your musculoskeletal system, the forces on your blood column are now equal. And there is no up or down. So you can't lie down, sit up, or anything. All of those forces are, are kind of nullified throughout your body. And that causes some changes that are highly adaptive, but but not very comfortable. Now, one of the first things we see when we get into zero gravity is that our sense of balance is totally challenged. And we have our own version of seasickness, if you will. We call it space motion sickness. And so for the first 48 hours, you can feel pretty lousy being in, in zero gravity. Now, all of a sudden, there is no definitive up or down. There's no horizon that has any meaning. And uh, you don't feel the pressure from your feet telling you this way is down, this way is up. So it can be very disorienting, and it can really cause some some issues. And uh so, but you get through that after a couple of days, and then um, you have other things that, that go on that are a little bit more long-term. Now, one thing is that you unload your musculoskeletal system so that if you don't exercise hard each day in weightlessness, uh, you will become very weak, and uh, your bones will actually start to thin out, sort of like osteoporosis. So we have to load that every day with two and a half hours of exercise, and uh, your heart and your vascular system change formidably, as, as does your, your brain and, and uh, visual system, as, as we've now known. How do you exercise without gravity? Great question. Uh, you, you actually have to artificially load yourself so that you're on a treadmill. Uh, typically, we'll use bungee cords or some elastic device, which gives us a little bit of bounce, but it holds us down to the treadmill. Huh. We have a resistive exercise machine like a universal gym. And if you get under that bar, that actually holds you in place very nicely. But you need those really big loads to, uh, to work against to keep your muscles and bones up. Interesting. Um, what about in terms of um, mental state? Has, has there been research looked at um, for the well, impact sure. of... So we, we look at psychology very seriously and very carefully. And when people think about spaceflight, uh, they think, I think, correctly about someplace that's remote and novel and physically challenging where you're in a very small space with a lot of under, uh, other individuals where the demands are high, uh, the, the pressure to succeed is high, the consequences of mistakes are, are high, and things could go south very quickly. 
So uh, we do spend a lot of time thinking about psychological factors, and that's that translates into how we select people, how we train people, how we train people as individuals and as crew, uh, and we've learned a lot. Now, one thing I'll tell you is that being on the space station is uh, is a challenge in and of itself, but it's nothing like going to Mars. When you're in low Earth orbit, you are with um, some of your closest friends, uh, hopefully they're your closest friends, and you're doing very interesting work every day, and you have real-time communication with the ground. So they're talking to you as if they're just in the next room helping to guide you through experiments, and you can have real-time conversations with your family. I called my wife every day when I was on space station. Wow. But if you are on your way to Mars, um, the work is not so interesting because you are mostly in transit and you're, you're doing your exercise to maintain your body and your ship, but you're not doing interesting experiments all the time. And very importantly, uh, you do not have real-time communication because of the, the calm delay, as we call it. Uh, radio waves only travel at the speed of light. And at uh, Mars's closest approach to Earth, that's about eight minutes, one direction to get a radio signal there. And it could be as much as 22 minutes. So the concept of real-time conversation with family, friends, co-workers on the ground is, is totally gone. And invariably, your spacecraft will be quite a bit smaller than what we have on the International Space Station. And of course, uh, instead of looking out the window and having this panoramic view of Earth, being able to instantly recognize familiar places, uh, that will be gone. So the level of remoteness will be ratcheted up considerably. Wow. Is it anything at all like the movie? <laughs> well, we which movie? You know, I think uh, uh, the NASA community is, is full of movie geeks, right. and uh, we all have our own scoring system, a rating system for movies. Some of them are quite good, and uh, we think that The Martian was, was very the good. The Martian. Neat. Yeah. So what can you tell us about the um, NASA's twin study? Um, astronaut Scott Kelly spent a year in space while his brother Mark Kelly was on Earth. Right. So interestingly, when uh, I was running the human research program for the space agency in 2012, and we started talking about doing a one-year flight, uh, basically a NASA astronaut and a Russian cosmonaut, to do kind of a pilot study to look at what would be the effect on the human body if you actually flew them for the amount of time it would take to get to Mars or to get to Mars and back in deep space cruise, which means weightlessness, basically. And we thought that it would be a good idea to do that at about middle of the way, about midway through our research portfolio for the station to be a pilot project, to give us an idea if we're moving our research in the right direction. Most of our missions were just six months in duration, and the question is, are we missing things beyond that six month that would be important to us? So we chose Scott Kelly and Mikhail Kornienko from the Russian side uh, to do these flights. Now, both were veteran flyers. We had uh, full confidence in their ability to, to handle the mission. Both were very enthusiastic to do it. But uh, as we started formulating the joint science program, uh, the U.S.-Russian scientists all, all getting together, figuring out how we would best capitalize on this mission. You know, we, we all knew that uh, Mark or Scott had a twin, which is Mark Kelly, of course, and he was one of our astronaut community as well. Um, and normally when you're doing twin studies, you want to do sets of twins so that the numbers are meaningful to you. Mm -hmm. So they're, they're more than a stunt. They're, they're something that has statistical significance. But in the case of genetics, genomics, the new tools we have, they give you a very sharp knife to kind of dissect the findings that you see. They give us powerful tools that make a, a single twin study, especially with such novel environments differentiating the two, meaningful. 
So we, with that, uh, assembled a team of uh, 10 genetics and genomics researchers, uh, really top of the line, who came down and said, these are the kinds of experiments we would like to do that we think would, would uh, pay off big as far as results go. And uh, so we did that. We, we formed a twin study, which was really a secondary thing, but became quite a big focus for us in the one-year flight. Interesting. Uh, let me remind listeners, this is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with physician and astronaut, Dr. Michael Barrett. Um, well, I wanted to ask you about the differences between regular medicine and aerospace medicine. Right. Well, every, uh, every medical field has its own set of issues and problems that it works on, and, and certainly aerospace is one of those. Uh, unlike a lot of other specialties, terrestrial cardiology or pulmonology or whatnot, we are still very much trying to define our problems in the space world. We've mm -hmm. been flying for a few decades, but we've flown so few people that we are still very much in a discovery phase. So we have a set of issues that we work with, certainly in the space medical world, that helps us to identify the biggest medical problems and to optimize performance uh, in those environments. Because we do know that we want to fly in space. We've made the decision we're going to explore. We're going to expand into the solar system and hopefully further at some point. So identifying those problems, those include, I mentioned the space motion sickness, problems with balance, but there's also cardiovascular deconditioning that goes on because the, the heart doesn't have to pump against gravity uh, all day long. And, and uh, really it deconditions in a way. The musculoskeletal degeneration that we talked about that demands lots of exercise. But there's other more subtle changes on the immune system, for instance, and the system that regulates fluid volume in your body, mm -hmm. the kidney, how the kidney functions um, and how blood circulates uh, that are also quite radically changed. And it's a question for us how much of that is just adaptive and how much of it might be maladaptive or pathological, if you will. Now, some of these things are, are just fine while you're in space, but they bite you when you come back. Um, we have other things that are a little bit more sinister, though, radiation being the big one. When you're up in uh, low Earth orbit, you get a lot of radiation, solar radiation, and uh, some, as we call it, galactic cosmic radiation. But even there, you're shielded below our geomagnetic fields. Once you get away from those shields, going to the moon, going to Mars, then you are exposed to the, the full force of galactic cosmic rays, and we worry about cancer risk and sometimes solar flares that, that might cause acute radiation syndromes. And another big item that we have come aware of is, uh, we call it a neuroophthalmic syndrome, which involves the brain and the visual system. And we see a constellation of issues, which include changing of shape of the eye, uh, swelling of the optic nerve, distension of the optic nerve sheath itself, um, we've Are seen, those permanent changes? Well, so some of them tend to regress when people get back to the ground, but not all. And, huh. uh, and I will tell you that my eye is permanently remodeled uh, after spaceflight. And uh, in some people, we've actually seen high intracranial pressure. So we have this set of medical problems that's very much tied to the specific environment that we need to understand so that we can optimize human performance in these environments and, again, expand outward. Um, I was going to ask, where do you do a residency for aerospace medicine? Is so it that has changed throughout the years. I did my residency at the Wright State University uh, program in Dayton, Ohio, uh, which is in partnership with NASA and the Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. Now, unfortunately, that program is in the process of closing, so a lot of us are very sad about that. We have a program at the University of Texas Medical Branch in Galveston, which works very closely with the Johnson Space Center. 
Um, we are also starting to train residents at, at Baylor College of Medicine and the um, Mayo Clinic has a, a program. The biggest consumer of the aerospace specialty is actually the military, the Department of Defense. Yeah, I imagine. So the uh, School of Aerospace Medicine uh, remains at uh, Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, and we actually work quite closely together. And, of course, their big concern is more high-performance aircraft, really big G-loads, where we're talking small G-loads in, in weightlessness. Okay. But it's a very tight community. Um, what sorts of medical emergencies are astronauts equipped to handle on their own in space? That's a really good question. So for low Earth orbit, we are, are governed by the rule of proximity, which means we're close. So that if somebody really got sick, we would want to bring them home as quickly as we could. And we can do that. We can actually be home within a few hours. It's not a comfortable ambulance ride. Uh, you have to pop into the little Russian Soyuz and and go through a high-G entry and land in the middle of Kazakhstan and, and be transported. But nonetheless, um, we don't want to do anything up there that we could potentially do down here. So we don't have, for instance, surgical capabilities up there or prolonged acute, in uh, acute care or intensive care. What we can do is respond to emergencies as first responders. So everybody, every mission has crew medical officers trained at least to a paramedic level. So we have a fairly substantial first aid kit, but we also have a defibrillator. We have a portable transport ventilator. We can do airway management, and uh, we can actually do a lot of things that a paramedic would be able to do once they first arrive on your door and get you ready to ship to the hospital. Well, I also wanted to ask about um, infectious diseases, and mm -hmm. because you're in a confined space with other people, does that make you more at risk or less because you're not around anyone other than those people? Well, so the answer is yes to both. Now, we, we quarantine everybody before they go to the space station. So for two weeks, you have very limited access to people. You certainly can't just interact with the general public. And anybody you do come into direct contact with has to be medically screened uh, for infectious disease. So that is a program that has served us fairly well. So when people go up there and live in this small environment they try or they they tend not to share things because we don't bring things now that has failed uh just on a couple of occasions in many decades of space flight so mostly that's a testament to how well it works but i happened to be up there at one time when it didn't work and a visiting crew brought a respiratory virus a common cold if you will but I can tell you that the common cold is anything but common in zero gravity, and there's no gravity-assisted drainage of congestion. I mean, your head feels like it wants to explode. And a lot of our crew got this because we were in such small confines. So uh, it tells you that those, those factors are at work and they're real. You're going to share things when you're living so close together, uh, and you really do need to be strict on your quarantine before people go. How do you fight the cold in space? I mean, you've got tissues and... Yeah, well, it's, uh, I, I'll, I'll have to let the, the listeners use their imagination a bit, but because we don't have any gravity, uh, sometimes we can induce a half a second of artificial gravity by swinging things in an arc. And uh, if you swing around the monkey bars, so to speak, from your arms as you're, you're moving, you can actually get a little bit of gravity artificial gravity from the top of your head to the bottom of your head. And a little bit goes a long way. Um, otherwise, standard medications tend to work. Uh, decongestants uh, were, were very helpful and pain meds. And, and you're just going to feel lousy for a few days, just like on the ground. Um, what sorts of monitors or sensors track astronaut health in space? Are there doctors on Earth monitoring things about their health while they're 
on a mission? Yeah, you know, I think people have the image of the Apollo 13 movie where the doctor on the ground is continually watching the electrocardiogram tracing and the body temperature. And we used to do that indeed. And what we have found is that that data that we get is fairly uninteresting. Um, we have found that the heart seems to function on a different level, but but just fine. We really don't need to monitor it all the time. And uh, we really don't do real-time medical telemetry on astronauts anymore, not not even on launch on U.S. spacecraft. Our Russian colleagues still do. Um, but we found that we don't see anything really scary. And when an astronaut is launching to space, there's nothing you can do about it anyway. <laughs> so, okay. so we don't do that anymore. We do periodic health checks instead. So every 30 days during a long mission in space, we will do a medical exam, which is guided by a physician on the ground, or if there happens to be a physician on board, they will just run that. And so it's just a quick physical exam. It's a look at temperature. Sometimes we'll do imaging, ultrasound imaging, and uh, kind of look at where the organs are because all that shifts in weightlessness. Uh, but unless there's a clinical indication, we find that people just go up there and, and they work and they're fine. And the people that are selected for missions are in prime health anyway, right? Yeah, and we really choose healthy people. And people, I think, also have a conception that we're looking for the ultra fit, and, and that's really not it either. It's it's more the health that uh, correlates with a low incidence of background disease. So we don't want cardiovascular uh, issues. We don't want people to have heart attacks up there during their months. So we choose people that are very healthy with good risk factors uh, before they go. So people so, who aren't taking blood pressure medicine? In general, or, but I will also tell you that the average age of the long-duration flyer now is 47-ish. Huh. Uh, so it's a little bit older than most people think. And, and we have found that when you, you choose an astronaut in their late 20s or early 30s, it costs millions of dollars to train over years and have them ready. And so if if somebody develops a medical problem but is a very stable one and it's easily treatable, then we're able to to fly those people on stage with a lot of consideration. Uh, we have a bunch of very smart flight surgeons on the ground who make a determination of the risk. And uh, if if it's an easy, low risk, then, then we actually fly these people. Okay. So um, you mentioned... Uh, motion sickness or whatever, yeah. um, and get adapting to that. Are there other common ailments that um, typically affect astronauts? Oh, sure. The, the bread and butter practice, the day-to-day -day practice of space medicine involves things like the space motion sickness we talked about. Back pain is very common. Uh, over 50% of astronauts get what we call space adaptation back pain. And that happens as a result of the unloading of the spine and probably stretching of the, the ligaments between the, the vertebrae. And uh, at... Fortunately, it, it's self-limited. It tends to go away after a week to 10 days. Uh, but a very large number of people, and uh, we use a lot of back pain medicine, basically uh, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs for that. Now, there are some other entities of back pain that happen because of the skeletal un unloading and the loading we put back on it because of countermeasures, which can be a little bit more enduring. Fortunately, they're not all that common. Foreign bodies in the eye, very common because there's no gravity. Particles of dust do not settle out. So it's not all that uncommon to encounter something as you're flying through a module and, and uh, pop it in the eye. And so we uh, train everybody to remove foreign bodies from eye, and we, we've done that many times. Headaches are common. We have a high carbon dioxide uh, level in our spacecraft atmosphere. It's about uh, 15 times higher than you would find on the ground because mm -hmm. people produce carbon dioxide. Everybody produces about a kilogram a day, which we have to scrub the best we can but the technology to get it down to the same level as Earth atmosphere is very difficult. 
and we have these little unventilated pockets of higher carbon dioxide. So headaches are a problem. Headaches are also caused probably by the fluid shifts that we see. Uh, all the fluid that's normally pooling in your legs is now up in your chest and head. So just feelings of congestion. So we, we tend to take pain meds for things like that. And sleep disorders, probably the the next big medical thing we see. I was going to ask about that. There's no, right, there's no cha- dark light. Does that matter? Well, so we go around the earth every 90 minutes, which means there are 16 sunrises and 16 sunsets a day. So the, your circadian cues basically do not help Gone. you anymore. Uh, daytime is when we choose to turn on the light. Now, and of course, darkness when we turn it off and go to sleep. We have uh, opted as an international community to use Greenwich Mean Time. So we regulate to that schedule the best we can. Uh, but there's other things that assail your sleep. Uh, background noise is definitely one of those because without gravity, you have to move fluids. There's no gravity helping you move one fluid to another place or even separate gases of different densities. So fans and pumps are always going in zero gravity. Mm-hmm. Just think it in a zero gravity cabin, noise is just going to be an issue always because of that. And that's, uh, that makes it not that easy to sleep. And just stress. You're under very high pressure to perform. You're doing experiments that have been years and millions of dollars in the making. And, and you take a lot of that to bed with you. So sleep disorders are, are one of the biggest issues that we see. Do uh, medications work as well in space as on Earth? They seem to. We, uh, dep- we definitely use uh, classes of medications for all those problems I mentioned. So decongestants. Uh, antihistamines, pain medications, sleeping medications, and they all seem to work. Now, that's a very different statement than saying the the pharmacological properties are exactly the same. We have found that the pharmacokinetic and pharmacodynamic aspects of how drugs are metabolized, how they're eliminated, and how their uh, their levels are regulated are, are quite different for some drug classes. We've also found that shelf life is is quite limited. Uh, in space compared to on the ground. And we're not exactly sure why. So indeed, if you take a take an ibuprofen for back pain, it tends to work. Um, but we're not sure that that will continue to be true over months to years on a trip to Mars. And we're not sure of the physiological implications of all that. So that's actually a big focus of our study. Wow. Well, I wanted to ask you also about the space flights that you took. And you've mm-hmm. also been an aquanaut. Yeah. So I wanted to see how those experiences compared. <laughs> yeah, it's ironic because I my degree uh, in undergrad was marine zoology, but I had to become an astronaut to live in an underwater habitat, <laughs> uh, which was great for me. So the underwater habitat we use is the Aquarius habitat off the coast of Key Largo, Florida, and it sits uh, on the seabed about 60 feet deep. And uh, it's a very good analog for spaceflight. It, it's the closest thing I've ever done to spaceflight. When you look at the size of the module, the size of the crew, which was six souls down there, the same that we have on station right now, uh, you are isolated. You're not that far away, but you can't pop to the surface because you, you're under such pressure, you have to go through decompression stops. So it ends up being about the same amount of time to evacuate from the seafloor habitat as from the space station. Uh, it's also killer views out the window. I mean, there's a lot of similarities. And of course, mm-hmm. we ate space food there. And being uh, diving out on the reef is very much like going on a spacewalk. You have to suit up, get dressed specially, and go out there and do your work, do whatever science, and then come back in. So the parallels were tremendous, uh, which gives, a, gives us two things. It gives us a very good training analog. So people who do that, have that experience, just are inherently ready to go in space. 
but it also gives us a chance to study things, to do investigations in, uh, in an environment that's much more controlled and much cheaper than spaceflight. So when we go to space, our experiments are a lot more targeted. Uh, being on the reef was, was awesome. <laughs> so both experiences were really quite wonderful. Uh, everyone who goes into space, do they also go under? Uh, for the most part. I'm, I'm hoping that our new class that we've just chosen of 12 people will, will also go through this. But I would say more than half of the folks who've gone to the space station have done that. But, but I should say that the, the underwater habitat is one of a series of experiences that we provide to, for the lack of a better option, build expeditionary behaviors. You know, we, we want people who are going to be comfortable in uncomfortable situations and show that they can get along with a team outside of their normal comfort zones and do science and do work at the same time. So we have other venues as well. We, we go backpacking in not good weather, <laughs> of course. We, you know, winter, for instance. Um, we have uh, something that we do with our European Space Agency colleagues that involves a week underground in a cave in Sardinia. So you will not see any sunlight whatsoever. And it's, it's actually uh, fairly hazardous because it's exploring a cave that hasn't been fully explored before. But you're doing science at the same time. It's a similar team size as your spaceflight uh, crew. And we have other things like that that we do. And so all of those tend to show you people's behaviors in a way that your application will never show you or the interview will never show wow. you. Interesting. Um, as we look to the future, they say that there will be space tourism. Are there things that you as a physician are concerned about people, just regular people going off into space? Is that a good well, idea? Sure. But let me say that I'm concerned and excited about it. Um, ironically, I've flown with two space tourists. We've had seven individuals who paid a lot of money to fly the Russian Soyuz up to the International Space Station. One of those, Charles Simonyi, uh, who was one of the early founding fathers of Microsoft, uh, launched with me and my uh, Russian commander, Gennady Padolka. And so we flew up to the space station together and spent about uh, 10 or 11 days up there. And um, he paid for that experience. Uh, he was interesting because he, like most of those other folks, had technical backgrounds and degrees. Oh. Uh, Charles uh, is a PhD computer scientist. He's also a, a rated jet pilot. Uh, he's maybe a little bit more like us than not, but but certainly not a career astronaut and looks mm -hmm. at the world a little bit differently. Uh, Charles and I are good friends, and he's used these experiences to to educate. I mean, he's done amazing things with his spaceflight experience. I landed with another spaceflight participant, a tourist, if you will, and that was Guy La Liberté. Um, I didn't meet Guy until he showed up at the space station at the end of my six and a half month mission. And unlike all of his predecessors, Guy was an artist. He founded Cirque du Soleil. Uh, you know, he's not, uh, I don't, I mean, he's proud of this. He didn't finish high school. He was a street performer, but he's very right-brained compared huh. to the rest of us. Uh, so he sees the world very differently from the rest of us. But he's very brilliant in his way. And flying with an artist like that was really quite remarkable. And it gives you an idea of the possibilities, the, the diversity of personalities that will fly once the space tourism boom really takes off. And, and it's really quite wonderful. I mean, our idea is to open up the space frontier to humanity, not just keep a channel of, of highly selected explorers necessarily. We want the general population to follow. And I think I've had about as, as broad a glimpse of that as, as you could possibly get by, by seeing these very different individuals fly. And both were wonderful to fly with. 
Wow. Well, very neat. Well, thank you again for being here. My guest has been Dr. Michael Barrett, a physician and astronaut who is on the Upstate campus for a lecture. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air.